Let's come before God in prayer now. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together in worship and for your promise that where two or three are gathered together and in your name, you are there in the midst of them. So we believe that you're here by your Spirit and we ask that your Spirit would take these words and apply them to our hearts in the very place where we most need to hear them. So hear our prayers because we ask them all in the name of Jesus Christ, our friend and our Savior. Amen. Life is full of Kodak moments. I don't know if you can still talk about Kodak moments in the era of digital photography, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Times when families are together and good things are happening, birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, holidays, that kind of thing. Things that you can look back on with fondness in the years to come if you ever actually knuckle down and order the prints. See, before everybody went digital, uh, Rona and I used to keep a shoebox filled with all the year's photographs. And at the end of the year, we would go through and we would sort out the ones that we wanted to keep and we put them in an album along with cards and ticket stubs. And it was just a great way of keeping track of the year that had gone by and celebrating those Kodak moments. This morning in the reading that Carol brought to us just a moment ago, we're thinking about a different kind of moment. It's a moment that comes to define your life. In an average lifetime, you could probably count on the fingers of one or two hands those moments. Your wedding day, if you're married, the birth of your children, the death of a close relative, the day you made a particular decision that proved with hindsight to be crucial in your life's direction, the day maybe that you got a particular piece of news for good or for ill. Some of those moments come with pictures that you can look back on, but many of them don't. Many of them are just pasted into the album of our memories. Moments of deep significance in our journey through life. Some bringing gratitude and joy, others sorrow and pain. Defining moments. Baptism, as it was practiced in the early church, was just that kind of moment. Church writers from the first couple of centuries AD tell us that the preparation for baptism back in those days normally took about two years. Two years of catechesis, which is just a fancy word for teaching. During that time, the initiates could attend church, but they were screened off from the rest of the congregation. They would fast along with the rest of the church for the entire duration of Lent, and then they would have several days of intense fasting and prayer before their baptism, which usually took place at Easter, on Easter morning, uh, in a solemn ceremony overnight into Easter day. Baptism involved removing your clothes, being immersed fully in water, confessing your faith and being anointed with oil. You renounced your old way of life and you put on the new along with the clean robes that were waiting for you 
when the ceremony was over. You then went joyfully in to join the congregation for the first time in your first Eucharistic meal on Easter morning. It sounds incredibly intense to our ears. And I guess that's a measure of how seriously people were taking it. Given that becoming a Christian in those first few centuries might well lead to persecution, quite possibly even martyrdom, we can understand why baptism was seen as such a defining moment. It was a profoundly countercultural thing to do. And although today's gospel reading comes from even earlier than that, it's clear that John's baptism, the precursor to Christian baptism, was seen in a similar light. Why did folk go out into the desert to see John and be baptized by him? Why did so many go down to see this maverick preacher and submit themselves to the public humiliation of the baptism that he was performing? Because there was no hiding. John did his baptizing in broad daylight. Wrongdoing was acknowledged in public, not in the privacy of a confessional booth. This wasn't for the faint-hearted. So why did they go? Why did they put themselves through this? What did they find in what John was doing that they didn't find in all the established rituals of the temple, the great temple in Jerusalem? Well, I've thought about that a lot over the years. And I think that the most likely answer is change. The promise of change always gets our attention. Think about the kind of books that have been flying off the shelves or the apps that we've been downloading as we enter a new year. Experts telling us how to lose weight or quit smoking or get fit or finally take a hold of our lives. There's nothing new under the sun. They're promising change. And the promise of change has always piqued our interest as human beings. And the people of Israel were ripe for change in John's day. Like all peoples in the ancient world, Israel had a system of animal sacrifices, and they'd had that for generations, but they'd reached a point where it really wasn't working anymore. It hadn't set them free from their doubts about God or about their guilt or their tendency to mess things up. And so for many of them, it had just become another routine, a routine that you went through, a necessary bit of sin management, like washing the dishes after you've had a meal. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament puts it this way. He says, the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year can't make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But they did feel guilty. A thousand years of animal sacrifice for forgiveness of sins had shown them that they needed more than animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. They needed a change of heart. A change of heart that they couldn't muster for themselves. And that's what John was offering. 
a once-for-all cleansing and a new life that would follow a before and an after. A defining moment out there in the desert where so many of Israel's defining moments had happened in the past. And the people came to see him in their droves for a whole host of reasons. Some were there, I guess, out of curiosity. John was the first prophet that they'd had in Israel for about 300 years. Folk believed God had stopped speaking to them altogether until John came along dressing and eating and teaching like one of the prophets of old, like Elijah. So he was something to see, something of a curiosity. Others came out of jealousy and perhaps out of fear. The religious leaders were worried for their position and they marched down to the Jordan to make their presence felt and bring the collective weight of their disapproval to bear. But they were sent home with a flea in their ear. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, you brood of vipers? He roared at them. But most people came to go down into the waters. And even as John lowered them down, he said, this is only the beginning. Another one is coming, one more powerful than I am. I'm not even worthy to be his servant and untie his sandals. I'm baptizing you in water, but he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And so John, as was his destiny, prepared the way for the coming of the Lord, for Jesus. And when he came, he came first of all to be baptized by John. That's one of the first places we encounter him in the Gospels, submitting to John's baptism. And that puzzled the Gospel writers as they reflected on it and set down the story of Jesus' life. Why would the Son of God, the sinless one, need a baptism of repentance? It confused them and it confuses us today, but I think there are a couple of reasons he did it. The first thing that helps is to remember that repentance isn't just a turning away, it's also a turning to. It's about turning away from the wrong, but also setting your mind on the right, accepting the way that God wants you to go. Jesus had done nothing wrong that he needed to repent of, but here he's setting his mind on following the way that God had prepared for him. Like all of us who say we have faith, he had to set his own will aside so he could discover and live out God's will for his life. So there's a turning from, but there's an also a turning to. But the second thought's this. The theologians have always held that Jesus accepting John's baptism was a powerful statement that he wanted to identify with us and stand alongside us in our sins. He wasn't ashamed to be seen among those who were ready to admit that they didn't have it all together. They were the very ones he'd came to help and to save. It's the sick, not the healthy, who need a doctor, he went on to say. And this baptism, this submersion with and for God's beloved but messed up people was the first step on the long journey that took him 
to his greater baptism in the waters of death themselves, when the concrete boots of our sin and selfishness dragged him all the way to the murky depths on that first Good Friday. That's why he came. And that's why today in our reading, we find him making his way down to the Jordan along with all the stragglers and searchers and half-believers and want-to-do-betters and need-to-be-mores, all of them ready to go down into the muddy waters to find the new beginning that their hearts told them they really needed. And Jesus, God incarnate, sinless, joined them there. Let the Baptist plunge him deep into the river. And his held breath was a prayer for whores and tax collectors, for fat landlords and the landless, for bent judges and bankers with bonuses, for the guilty too afraid to stop drinking, for the sad who'd long forgotten where they had left joy in their lives, for the battered and bruised and disillusioned, for the doubting and unbelieving and unrepentant, for the innocent and the deluded, all of them held in the prayer breath that Jesus took in as John lowered him under the muddy waters of the Jordan. Under those waters, Jesus held the whole world in a deep breath, held even the lives that were not yet born. And he asked God this question, what if I carry their sin in my soul? What if I repent for the ones who cause hurt and share the pain of those that they've broken? What if I atone for the greedy and fill myself with the poverty of those who hunger? What if my baptism draws the lost world into me that there you may find it again? With a gasp, he came up from the water. And immediately an answer came. The heavens parted as though cut by a knife. And from the hidden beyond came all the colors of God's mercy, the music of forgiveness, the beat of justice, the laughter of peace, the riches of grace, the tenderness of welcome. And the Spirit, we're told, descended on him like a dove. And in that moment, Jesus hears it said, this is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Heard that voice before he had done anything, before he'd healed or taught or blessed or welcomed, before he told a single story of the kingdom or gone the long, lonely road to the cross, before he rose from the waters of death in his resurrection. Before all of that, Jesus hears his name spoken as beloved, delighted in. 
And all those who've entered into baptism in his name have the same love and the same delight of God spoken over them. For we are baptized into him and into his death. And if we have shared in his death, we will surely also share in his life. Sprinkled, dipped, infant or adult, these are the wrangles the church gets itself into over baptism. But they're all secondary. Today, as we remember the story of Christ's baptism, the only thing that matters is that we remember our own baptism and what it means. Let it define you as God's beloved, forgiven child. And let it define not only what you turn from, but what you turn to in all the years ahead.